I'm Patricia Pierce. Welcome to the Evolutionary Activist Podcast. We are living at an important moment in our history, a time that is calling us into a new way of being, a new consciousness from which a sustainable, just, and peaceful future can arise. In this podcast, we explore ways to help that future take hold within ourselves so that together we can help it come forth in our world. Hello, evolutionaries, and welcome to this week's podcast episode. Our guest today is Rabbi Sheila Weinberg. Rabbi Weinberg served as a congregational rabbi for 17 years before turning her attention to teaching mindfulness and meditation within the wider Jewish community and especially with Jewish leaders. She is one of the founders of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and she's the the creator and co-leader of the Jewish Mindfulness Teacher Training Program. Sheila travels extensively leading mindfulness and meditation retreats for Jewish leaders, and she's participated in international interfaith gatherings. Rabbi Weinberg has written on a variety of subjects, including Jewish spirituality, social justice, feminism, and parenting. And she's the author of two books, her memoir, Surprisingly Happy, an atypical religious memoir, which was published in 2010, and God Loves the Stranger, a collection of stories, poems, and prayers, which was published in 2017. I had the good fortune to meet Sheila several years ago, and since then we have been meeting regularly and uh, companioning one another on our own spiritual journeys. So it's a delight to have her with us today. And Sheila, thank you so much for your willingness to talk today. So just to start off our conversation, can you share with us, the listeners, what what first brought you to the practice of mindfulness? Sure. Um, so I suppose you would call me a spiritual seeker, um, very much so. And I was primarily involved in Jewish practice and spirituality within the Jewish world, which was not always something that people put together. But when I got to uh, Amherst, Massachusetts in 1989, the man who was the head of the search committee looking for a rabbi for the congregation, a wonderful man named Ted Sloven, was also on the board of Insight Meditation Society, which was one of the first significant Buddhist slash mindfulness retreat centers in the U.S. And it was only about less than an hour from where my congregation would be in Amherst, Massachusetts. And he said to me, oh, Rabbi, you're so fortunate. We're very close to this premier Buddhist meditation center. Now, not every rabbi would have jumped at that opportunity uh, to move up near a Buddhist center. But for me, that was a plus. And still, I was encouraged to go to a retreat, which was not like anything I had read about. Being on a retreat was really quite different and very, very challenging but also very exciting and inspiring at the same time. So that's really what started it all. And then you you went on sort of fast forward, but, but you now lead a lot of retreats. Right. And tell us more about when you, when you started experiencing these retreats, what, how was that radically different from things that you had experienced before? Well, first of all, I had never experienced silence. The Jewish world is not known for silence. 
And our world in general is not known for silence. Schools, the way we're trained, it's always fill up, fill up, fill up the space. Don't allow space. So that was so radical, simply the silence itself. And then I was exposed to the offering, the invitation really, to bring a kind relationship to what's going on moment to moment in your experience, in your body, and in your thoughts, and your feelings. And in the conditions that were offered, which were the silent conditions and the teachings, which kept encouraging us, it was something I had never, I never had an opportunity to, to experience before, to really know the nature of my own mind, to understand consciousness. And then I realized, you know, everything is really based on us understanding our own minds. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, the more we could possibly be with our own minds and not necessarily telling a story about them. I mean, it's interesting in therapy and I had been in therapy and this and that and the next thing, but not necessarily even the origins of our own minds, although that's interesting, you know, how we got that way and our parents and grandparents and this and that, which is also interesting, but just moment to moment, our fears, our cravings, you know, our judgments. Yeah. To notice those things as they're arising in the moment. Right. Yeah. It's a totally different thing than than looking back and, and creating some sort of story about things or trying to unearth a story about things. Right. Yeah. So you said in in this retreat you were encouraged to have, I think you said a kind relationship. Did right. You, did I hear that correctly? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, say more about having a kind relationship. <laughs> well, you know, I now, 20-some-odd, close to 30 years later, I know that that's true, and I know that it's difficult. I know that it's difficult, because the tendency of the mind is whenever anything arises that's unpleasant, it's to push it away. This is the basic teaching of the Buddha. And the if it's pleasant, we want more of it. And if it's neutral, we don't get that interested in it. So that really intensifies each mind state. Pushing away the negative just intensifies the negative. The constriction around constriction creates more constriction. And that's the natural that's the natural way. That's the way we're programmed. That's the way the mind is programmed for survival. Right. But we're trying to move beyond, as you've said so many times, and I so identify with you know your teachings. We're trying to move into a different consciousness. Right. Right. Because evolution to this point, it, it like you say, it programmed us to, in the interest of our own survival, be able to <laughs> sort of anticipate all the bad things that might happen, and right. and we get caught in this in this fearfulness and this judgment and everything. Right. So if we can actually see, be aware, use consciousness to be aware without judging, simply allowing ourselves to be in a friendly or kind relationship to what's happening, we can see that it doesn't have any fixed substance. It's all moving. It's all actually flowing. It's not permanent. We see deeply that things arise and pass. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to be trapped. And then we can have better choices about how to think 
and how to act with clarity around our values, around the things that we have determined are wholesome and valuable and uh, worthwhile. Yeah. And how that, that stance of kindness actually allows things that have arisen to, to then fade away. And, right. And it's when we're resisting them that we're keeping them in place. We're sort of locking them in and not allowing them to just arise and then fade. Right. Yeah. And, and in your work, then, you have brought this practice of mindfulness into the, your teaching settings where you're working primarily with Jewish leaders, right, rabbis and cantors. Yeah. And, and you see that, that, that these two worlds are, are not, um, they're not separate, that you, you, you can see in the Jewish tradition a lot of harmony with these teachings, of, mm-hmm. That are Buddhist. Te- that we I, we think of them as Buddhist teachings. Can you say more about how you see that this characteristic of of mindfulness present in your Jewish tradition? Well, this has been the project for the last, as I say, twenty seven years or so. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and it's it it continues to unfold. I, it, just to give you a very basic example. Within Judaism, primary practice is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is we, the way we manage it in our culture is, you know, we fill it up with a million activities. But actually, it's a renunciation practice, like sitting on a retreat, like being in silence. It's letting go of our habitual actions, our habitual working, our habitual you know, trying to make the world conform to our needs and desires. We let the world be. We let go. We don't spend money. We don't make money. That's basic rule of the Sabbath. We don't work. And we let go into the openness. To what end? To what purpose? To see more clearly. To see how our minds work. To see what's of value. To see what's true. To see creation. To actually see how, you know, the spring is coming, you know, you could, you know, you're not completely absorbed in your own distraction. So to get out of our distraction. So that's one way. Another, I mean, I go on and on and I talk about the Sabbath, but uh, it's such a profound practice and so valuable. I know you've talked about it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, though it's, you know, it's rooted in Judaism and people practice it or don't practice. It's very hard. You know, we have now. Someone once talked about, you know, they used to have, you know, things used to close, but, you know, now you have things open 24-7, 24-7. Right. Yeah, so we never get that break. The culture just... There is no break. There's, yeah, there's no, there's no boundary time where we aren't faced with this, this pressure to be engaged and, and it, well, okay, it's so you also said, you know, we, we cease from work on the Sabbath, and I think about our... Even even mental activity can be work. It doesn't even have to be things that we're doing in the physical domain, but we can, our minds can be engaged in, in efforting, um, even if we are allowing our bodies to rest. So there's something right. about just giving the mind space to, to just be. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's so incredibly true. And it's so difficult in our world because talk about 24 seven with a computer, there's never an end. You can do anything, anytime you can be working 
all the time. And, you know, I think the even the call it epidemic or the, the prevalence of, of sleep issues that people have, I think it's all related to the, the computer and the non stopping of anything. So that's just one example. I mean, another example would be the Jewish practice of saying blessings before you engage in an activity. So for instance, there's a, and there are concrete specific blessings that you say now can't say I always do everything, but I try at least to remember blessings. The rabbi said that you should say a hundred blessings a day. Now, what is a blessing? A blessing is taking a moment, it's taking a breath, so that you are aware, mindful, you could say, of what you are doing. Mm. You know, you are actually connecting with what you are doing. And there's a difference between the blessing for a piece of fruit and a blessing for a vegetable. And there's a blessing for when you do something for the first time. Because that, you know, increases the awareness, the curiosity, all of those things to engage the capacity to, to be with what is occurring right now. So then we're not lost in the past or lost in the future. Mm-hmm. And I also present. Yeah. And I also experience blessing as a, a practice that moves me, I'll say, energetically into um, gratitude yes, and connectedness yes. with others or with whatever it is that I'm doing. And, and I, gratitude is so now-oriented. You know? right. We're grateful for, for what, what we are experiencing now. It's not future-based so much and we're past. Um, so it's a beautiful practice. Right, right, precisely, precisely. So, I mean, I can go on and on with this because the other thing that we've done over the years is read text. Uh, you know, we read the Hebrew Bible and other texts as well, Jewish mystical texts in particular that are very psychological, psycho-spiritual texts. But just you could also just read read anything, Psalms, for instance, and read as what is this teaching me? How can I take this in? How can this be a, a consciousness teaching? How can this expand my mind? How can this, in, you know, in your sense, how can this get me out of ego mind? Mm-hmm. You know, which is what, you know, which is what they certainly have, in, you know, they're, whatever their intentions were of those texts, they, they exist in order to interpret. That's our feeling about it. And there have been many people who have interpreted them to all kinds of egoic purposes, as you have right. made very clear in your writing. Right. And same thing in Judaism, same thing in all the religions. And what about looking at the same texts, but from a perspective of expansion and connection and healing, mm-hmm. healing the wounds and, you know, just contemplating the deep wisdom that it that is true that is true in my experience not some abstract intellectual but something that how can i see these texts as true in my experience these stories and it's a way to have a common story so we can connect around the common stories but it's all about our own experience yes and what you're saying about how um we can bring different lenses to these types of readings. And if we bring that lens of the ego mind, we see one thing. 
And right. if we bring that lens of, you know, expanded consciousness, non-dual consciousness, whatever, we see something very different. Exactly. Yeah. So you've been, you've been, in a sense, bridging these worlds, but also elucidating within your own tradition these, these practices that got sort of marginalized over time, but these practices of presence and mindfulness that we typically equate with, with Buddhism. You've been doing this work for a while. How are you finding, or are you finding people are really receptive to this, this sort of work? Well, I would say, um, I would say yes, you know, not everybody, of course, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, which, you know, has been, is going to celebrate 20 years, um, continues to get a lot of interest, continues to get a lot of interest. And even in mainstream communities, mainstream congregations, there are many synagogues now that have meditation groups. You know, because people have gone to our retreats and they've done the programs and they've done the Jewish mindfulness teacher training and they come back and they have a new way of speaking. Now, is this the mass of people? Uh, Probably not. You know, probably not. But there are also people that are spiritual seekers and would go elsewhere. You know, they would go to uh, maybe the secular world, MBSR to Buddhism, and now they find, you know, they can they can do the integration with their own tradition. So certainly, you know, it's hard to say because we're in such a difficult time again, and we're we're experiencing such polarization, etc. This form of nationalism, and at the same time, you know mindfulness, spiritual practice has really grown all across the board. Mm -hmm. So it's both and. I mean, I don't think they're disconnected either. Mm -hmm. So it's everything, yes. But, you know, the Institute has uh, done well. There are a couple of other groups that do retreats, and again, in the Jewish idiom. And, um, you know, I I think it's because when we started, let's put it that way, when we started, people were like, this is what are you kidding? You're gonna get you're gonna get Jews to sit quietly. You're gonna get rabbis to sit quietly. You're nuts, you know. And you're you know this is foreign implants, foreign stuff. But the people don't understand. There's there's nothing authentically pure about any tradition. Right. It's all been syncretism. Everybody's barred from everybody. That's right. Which is a fabulous thing. I and mean, if it weren't for that, we would all be much poorer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not apologetic about that. Yeah, and you've also you've also been part of interfaith gatherings, and um, you've spoken and have traveled and to to meet with interfaith gatherings. So you you have this perspective not only in within the Jewish world, but in a broader the broader world of religions and spiritualities. What do you what do you what do you see that excites you when you have these opportunities to be in these gatherings well you know it's more like i find my uh, sisters and brothers uh in other um in other traditions there's no question about it i mean like you and me you know Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. we're we're on the same wavelength even though you know my tradition is jewish you know i grew up in the jewish you grew up in the christian that's but uh, we're we're on the same wavelength we see it um you know, and I've had the same experience with uh, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. Um, the most uh, dramatic uh, interfaith event I think I 
went to was in Japan, uh, an interfaith pilgrimage, and we had Hindus and Buddhists, Christians, uh, Muslims, Jews, uh, myself and my colleague were the only Jews. And, you know, we just felt so close. Now, at the same time, I don't feel that affinity with a lot of Jews. Mm. Yeah, I think I think probably a lot of people within, well, probably any tradition could say the same thing. I mean, I right. people in the Christian world feel the same way, that there's there's a lot of disconnect, you know. Um, you know, Ken Ken Wilbur talks about different stages of 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 the evolution of spirituality. It's almost like we resonate more with people who are at the same stage, regardless of their tradition, right. Um, right. than we do people in our own tradition who may be um, in a different place with that. Right, and there's so much disapproval within our tradition. Uh, you know, we are someone like me would receive a lot of disapproval from someone within Judaism who is very on a different wavelength than I am, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not be recognized as a rabbi. I would not be seen as a teacher, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is painful. Yeah. Um, but it is what it is. You know, what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, when we started the Institute, it was called the Institute. It's a great name if you think about it. The Institute for Jewish spirituality so really assumes that spirituality is universal Mm. our form is the jewish form Mm -hmm. yeah and that's a great thing to have you know a particularistic form of something that's universal right because ultimately i believe that all of these traditions take us eventually to the same place to the same realization right but they're they're different their different roads of getting there, right? Yeah. right. Well, I I think um, you you brought up the you know the polarization that we find ourselves in right now, and I know that um, I think a, you know a lot of people are feeling this, but my my hunch is that people in the Jewish tradition, Jewish community, are really feeling the effects of this, and I know that. Um, you and I have spoken a little bit about epigenetics and how mm-hmm. you know it's become evident now that that trauma gets passed down through um, through our genetics through the and uh, you know I learned recently it's the way that the that experience the traumatic experiences actually um, twist and fold the DNA into a particular structure but um, and so the Jewish people have, have experienced generations of trauma, extreme trauma. And, um, and how do you think that that generational trauma gets healed? Because I think when we're in these moments of polarization, such as we're in right now, you know, those traumatic experiences get triggered. And, how do you see, like for example, mindfulness and some of these spiritual practices as helping, helping folks um, release the legacy of trauma? Do you think it's possible for spiritual practices to help us do that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great, great question, and uh, something you know I think about a lot. In fact, just the other day. I went to a book launch of a book 
by Rabbi to it's a Firestone. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but uh, uh, just came out, and uh, it's uh, she's a rabbi. She was a Jungian psychologist. Did her dissertation, then went back to get a PhD. Did her dissertation on healing from intergenerational trauma, and uh, the book is called uh, From Wounds to Wisdom, and. Uh, I know Tirtz for many years. She's also a student of mindfulness and psychology and many other modalities. And she herself was a child of survivors. Her father, I think, was a Holocaust survivor. And much trauma in her own history, in which she talks about in the book, and she talks about many other people. You know, I think it's it's possible. I think it's possible. It it's very very hard. It I you know more than anything else, I think it's incredibly important work to do you know examples of it are in this group i was just in israel palestine with these this group combatants for peace and you have former israeli soldiers and former palestinian fighters who have decided that they want to collaborate together and work on nonviolence together to end the occupation but also to get to know each other and be together and the amount of healing that has to happen first of all to not be traumatized you know healing a healing of trauma just to be with the enemy to be Mm -hmm. with the other and listen to their story and these are people who've been imprisoned and these are people one guy was actually going to assassinate the other guy oh wow I mean, and here they are now collaborating oh my gosh there's also a group in Israel called um Parents of the bereaved or families of the bereaved is Jewish and also Arab, Israelis, Palestinians, people who have lost a child or a parent, I suppose, or a a brother, a sibling uh, in the conflict. And they gather together to work together, Um, families of the bereaved. You know, these are models to me, extraordinary models. Uh, this same Combatants for Peace every year holds a Memorial Day for um, uh, an Israeli-Palestinian Jewish-Arab Memorial Day. So together, rather than, you know, we're going to you know, memorialize our people and hell with you, you know, kind of thing. They do it together. So people to move into that place have to have already done a huge amount of healing. Yeah. Um, and this is this work is very very important. I mean, I'm really glad that now we talk a lot about trauma, mm-hmm. uh, but it's hard, and you, <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. You have to be willing to be held, and you have to be willing to enter into places of deep discomfort. And it's, it's you're right. I mean, she speaks about that tears of the intergenerational, the epigenetics. Yeah, and someone recently, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but. Um, uh, I came across this book through Combatants for Peace on Nakba and Holocaust and how uh, trauma instigates and continues cycles of trauma, the Arab trauma around the, the Nakba, the, what they call the Nakba, the expulsion, and the Holocaust, how, you know, the, the cycles of trauma, that's what we know about. That's how how it works if it's not uh, – so – what a challenge. What a challenge in our time. What a challenge. Yeah, and that was when I visited Israel many, many years ago. That was, that was one of the, the, the senses that I had, one of the just like 
there's it's like an epicenter of trauma there's so much trauma right and and i think that you know that trauma it 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 belongs to us globally i mean the you know these traumas have happened have arisen because of global dynamics and so it's you know we all own this it's it's a collective responsibility and and i'm just sitting here thinking you know what what role do, do the wider communities have to play in in opening space up so that these traumas can be can be held and healed mm-hmm. and i you know i certainly don't know the answer to that but i'm just so aware that this is you know that this is the trauma of humanity it belongs to all of us and mm-hmm. you know so many so many uh, people, peoples have experienced extreme trauma as a, as a result of, you know, of oppression of these political and economic systems that again, you know, for me, in my, in my framework, it goes back to this egoic mind and this idea of being separate from each other and seeking to, to have power and, and control over others and, and um, the economic greed and exploitation and, you know, all of that plays out in these disastrous scenarios sometimes so now you know we we're at this point now where the healing is essential yeah 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 absolutely absolutely and as again you've pointed out but it's so clear that trauma creates is is creates fear Mm -hmm. uh very compulsive fear uncontrolled fear and those who want power can take a lot of advantage of people who are afraid. Right. You know. um, the cynical. I like that idea, though, that everyone is responsible. Yes. I mean, look at the Native American, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or the or racism in this country, the African-American trauma. You know, uh, who's responsible for that? It, global forces. Exactly. And the whole Israel-Palestine thing. I mean, the British... I came across a statement by a British prime minister back in like 1907 saying, you know, we really have to create a wedge here. Otherwise, you know, the Arab speaking world, which is very large and Muslim and could be united as a, as a, as a rival empire. So, you know, let's, you know, that's a great idea to, you know, stick the Jews in there. Be a little bit of a wedge against, you know, so they'll be just fighting all the time and it'll weaken the potential rival empire. That's so fascinating. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. There's so much manipulation on the part of forces, the egoic forces, mm-hmm. you know, and so many other people they'll play along, think they're going to get the short term, you know, everybody wants the short term benefits. I mean, the Jews, you know, it's so complicated now mm-hmm. in the Jewish world. And it's so divided. Oh, my God. So, and the, the fact that there are these global forces, to me, it also comes back to the, the essential need for us to be doing our own work um, in our own minds and our own healing. Because otherwise, like you're saying, we're really at the mercy. We're totally unaware and we're completely susceptible to being manipulated and, and, um, and just passing along this legacy of, of division and fear and and um and violence and all of that right right so i know you've you've also i believe done work around 
compassion, uh, compassion, heart work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how, how compassion plays into all of this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it goes back to what we first started off with, you know, what does it mean to bring a friendly relationship to the moment, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, how do we really learn to feel loved? I, it's such a big part of it. And I, I, you know, some years ago, I came across this teacher, John McCransky, and his work, and he was connected with Tibetan Buddhism, which I hadn't really studied before. I had the, the main strand of Buddhism I had been with was uh, Theravadan or the insight meditation. But the Tibetans, as it turns out, a very much more, um, I would say, a devotional in a way. And sure, there's devotion in many traditions, but again, the modern era, what do we do with devotion? And Judaism is complicated devotion. Do we really feel God loves us, even though it says it all over the prayer book? You know, it does say, you know, your love, your beloved. Uh, Christians, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's easier. You have an image. There's an image, but what does that mean? And does oh my it, gosh, it, no, it's no easier. <laughs> it's no easier. <laughs> and then you know, it, it's it's a. Uh, you know, I think probably the Hindus have have the most, uh, and the Tibetans. Uh, but be that as it may, in our culture where there's so much judgment, you know, you're so much competition. Again, it's the now again it's the ego, but there's so much competition, so much grading, and it's it, and it's shaming. And the little kids, I mean, my grandson is in third grade. He has to take tests. You know, he has to take these PSAs, whatever they call their some kind of you know standardized test. I mean, he's in third grade. Right. You know, he has to he has to get a grade. It's yeah. ridiculous. You know, in places like Finland, they don't even make the kids go to uh, learn how to read until they're in third grade or fourth grade. They let them play. That's all he wants to do. He's terrific at playing. Yeah, you know, that's what he's supposed to be doing <laughs> at that age. <laughs> you know? But to be yeah. honest, they have a test. But mm -hmm. any case, so we're so and it wilts or it. It, it wipes out the, the our sense of our own worthiness, our deep worthiness. So meditation practice you know, that I've been working with and teaching around really remembering our, when we, moments even, and this I really got from John and some of his colleagues, remembering moments. Now, if you try to think about the perfect person who loved you, you know, everybody's flawed and, you know, your mother could have done better and your father could have done better and, you know, everybody has their issues. But, I mean, it goes back to really being seen. And if you can't have a perfect person, it doesn't matter. If you can remember a moment and really feel in the body and, and just attune the mind it goes almost back to your gratitude practice that we, you mentioned before. Attune the mind so that we're not always just seeing what's missing, how we messed up. Oh, I messed up. Oh, I messed up. You know, right, everybody's right. always so conscious of, I didn't do it, I do it. What about training the mind to actually see moments when somebody opened the door? You know, when somebody was friendly, when somebody received you well, you know, when something came in the mail that you didn't expect and it was just lovely. Okay, you know? so let me just share something that just popped into my mind in response to this. It's such a simple little thing. But my husband, Kip, and I were at a coffee shop yesterday and 
And one of the young men who works there, I see him every time I go, his name is Kevin, he comes along to bust the table. And he's one of these guys with a beautiful smile and his eyes twinkle. And he greets me and he takes away my <laughs> my coffee cup. And I just think, I love this guy. <laughs> I just, I love Kevin. He's just such a wonderful <laughs> spirit, you know. So even something as simple as that just uh, totally. opens up that window. Totally, totally. And then to, to practice, it's a question of training and practice. You know, we're so practicing, you know, getting right, getting it right. But what if we practice receiving love, mm. receiving care, receiving uh, the sense of being seen as a worthy being? Because ultimately, you know, all our traditions, you know, really at, at heart, they say, you know, we're worthy. We're worthy. And, you know, there's worthiness here. And then if you can receive it, it, it invariably flows through. Yes. It flows through to the other, you know, and then it flows through to the places of difficulty. I mean, there's where the compassion is or to the problems. But it has to start with the receiving and the allowing. So it's, it's big practice. I mean, it's a practice that we need to do with the people closest to us. And, you know, to receive when they're nice to us, you know, really, it's like they're not take it for granted. So it's, it's a huge practice, but I've been, I, I find a connection to um, Jewish prayer that at the center of the morning and the evening Jewish prayer is love, love. And the non-dual, the Shema, the six words that say, hero Israel, pay attention, there is one. There is one. It is one. It yeah. is one. That means one, folks. <laughs> How many right, times right? will we have to say that? Yes. <laughs> and then, but it's surrounded by receiving love and then extending love. Yes. There's prayers yes. Surrounded by that. Yes. And receiving I'm, the truth that we are already loved and that it's not about being that third grader having to do well on a test it's like nothing (laughs) there are no standardized tests (laughs) they're really in reality with a capital r (laughs) it's crazy it's crazy you know yeah and all of that also for me energetically it's like the heart opening and allowing and it's very yin you know, yeah. we live in such a young culture where we're always, you know, having to be active and going out and striving and accomplishing things and active, active, active. We're, we seem to be coming back to where you started with the Sabbath. But this is totally yin, and it's yeah. allowing and receiving the love that we already are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. And it cuts through, you know, um, even the people that disagree with us, the people who we may be prejudiced against or have inherited prejudice against, um, you know, the people who are down and out, you know, again, because of various cultural patterns, um, you know, it's without exception, mm-hmm. without exception. I mean, it's, it's it, and then we discover all the inner barriers we have. To receiving love. Yes, and the self-judgment you know, and the, the obstacles that. and the shadows. And then yeah. we try to bring to the best of our ability when we can, you know, again, attention, kind, friendly, compassionate attention, even to those places. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, so what what are you up to now? What's what what's on your horizon? Well, I actually have a lot of stuff going on. I I'm in an f- interesting phase. I turned seventy three. And I really, you know, I don't have any big ambitions. I'm sort of open to see what the universe wants from me in these years. Um, so I, yeah, I'm filling in. I'm no longer um, the co-leader of the Jewish Mindfulness Teacher Training. I tried to get out, but then they had a couple of things. So I'm sort of going in as a substitute for that. But I think this will be my last. And I am doing a few other uh, Jewish retreats. Uh, I have about three coming up. Uh, as well as this uh, group that I connected with through the uh, John McCransky people, uh, something called the Courage of Care. And the person who's running that is a woman named Brooke Lavelle. And it's about uh, practices for activists, uh, contemplative practices for activists and caregivers, not Jewish. So it'll be interesting for me. Uh, I mean, obviously she knows I'm a rabbi, but it's going to be kind of more of a secular things. I'm going to be doing a retreat with them out in Portland, Oregon. So that's a a new uh, venture for me. And uh, I have two interesting things coming up. One is uh, I'm going to, uh, Brooke actually recommended me to this man who is a professor of care and compassion at Penn State. And he does a lot of the neuroscience um, experiments and research. And every year there's a compassion lecture but he invited me not to do the compassion lecture, that's an academic, but to do a workshop with some of the researchers on Jewish sources, again, of love and compassion. And then I had the, the other interesting, um, one other interesting invitation was to go to Union Theological Seminary uh, in New York. And there's a center, there's a Buddhist studies program at Union Theological, and they're inviting this man called T.K. Nakagaki. He was a Japanese uh, Buddhist uh, teacher and priest, I guess. And he wrote a book called The Buddhist Swastika and Hitler's Cross. Amazing title. Wow, wow, wow. uh, He's having a Christian, a Buddhist and a Jew. I am the Jew that's going to be responding to it. So I just read this book and I actually found it amazingly interesting. Uh, and he's saying, you know, that the swastika was actually a very important uh, symbol of, of good fortune in the East and how it was twisted in a sense. And how do we respond in sort of East-West culture and the meaning of symbol? And then I'm doing, I guess the last thing I'm doing is a project with the Reconstructing Judaism, the rabbinical school here that I went to. And they're working with three Jewish social justice organizations. And my goal and my job is to invite them into some sort of spiritual practice, some of the leadership team, and see if that can make a difference in the way they do their activism. So that's sort of interesting. It's all going to be online. And uh, we'll see what happens with that. And I do a lot of uh, one-on-one work, a lot of spiritual direction, just meeting with people one-on-one and working on their own, um, accompanying folks on their own path of, uh, in spirit. So that's a big part of my life, which I love. So that's a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> I always have trouble keeping up with you. <laughs> like, okay, where have you traveled since I saw you last? <laughs> well, I, I wish you all the best with all of this. It sounds it sounds so intriguing, all of it, and such important work. 
And, um, and I just want to thank you again for taking the time to be on the call with me today. It's been great talking with you. And um, again, the titles of your books, if people want to check those out, your first one, your memoir, yes. was surprisingly... Ha- Do you want to say anything about your books? Uh, no, they're just little short books, and they're a lot of fun. Um, right, Surprisingly Happy, an Atypical Religious Memoir, that's my story. And the and also how I got, you know, the Jewish piece and the Buddhist piece comes together. And then God Loves a Stranger, which is actually a very important um, realization for me at a certain point, um, really with the Syrian refugee crisis. And we're, we have one refugee crisis after another. And to recognize the stranger both out there and inside. It's working with the stranger on the inside and the stranger on the outside in that relationship. Uh, which is deeply rooted in my view in, in all our cultural, in all our religious traditions, and I speak about it in a Jewish tradition. So there are a lot of stories, poems, practices, and uh, and the like. Um, and uh, I just have to say, you know, it's been such a good fortune for me to have met you. I'm very, very happy about that, and I'm a big fan of your book and a big fan of your podcast. Well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so. I'm I'm really grateful for the person who said <laughs> she knew both of us and she said she said something along the lines of I don't know what either of you are talking about but you need to meet each other. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> yep, yep, That's yep. great. Well, Sheila, thank you again so much for being with us today. You're so very welcome. And I will see you soon. Good. Good. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.